Well, this morning, after the brief little detour into 1 John, we're back in the book of Hebrews. Two weeks ago, we looked at a, an introduction based on the first one and a half verses. <clears throat> Excuse me. This morning, I want to look at the paragraph, the section that really opens the book, which includes verses 1 through 4, um, lays the foundation and sets the stage for many of the things that follow in the book, uh, but also begins to uh, make the argument that we're going to see over and over and over again in Hebrews um, that Jesus Christ is superior to everything. And it begins here in these first four verses. So let me read it for us and then we will get into the text. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in, the, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So ends the reading again of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As we come before it this morning and consider it, may it bear fruit in our hearts and minds. Let me pray for us as we come before the word. Our God and Father, again, as always, we ask your blessing as we come before your word, asking that you will speak to us through it, that you would fulfill the promise that you've made, that it goes out, does not return to you void, rather instead it is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and ears so that we might see and hear all that you would have us learn this morning. And do make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. As Father, again, we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, the superior name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What's your name? It's a question we ask people we meet. What's your name? Who are you? Another thing that's fun to... uh, ask about names is what do they mean? Many names carry a meaning of some kind. And do you know the meaning of your name? And here's one of the interesting things. Does the meaning of your name match who you are? Sometimes it does very, very well. Um, Other times it's not a good fit at all. Uh, Think of the nicknames we give people. the, the, The tall, huge, hulking, strong man who gets called Tiny. Um, or Little John, or something like that. Names match, sometimes they don't, and the meanings of names can be, can be fascinating. For a young parent expecting a child, um, sometimes we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy, and sometimes there's friction between mom and dad as you consider the name that you're going to give your child. Um, you'll go online today. In the old days, we used to buy books. Um, baby names and their meanings, and you look up names, and you consider what they sound like, and how do they fit with your last name, and how do they go together, and 
do we like the way it sounds and we do, do we like what it means? And it's one of the great decisions a parent makes as a child is born. What name do I give uh, my child? And of course, we know from the Bible that names oftentimes have great meaning, very applicable meaning to the story, the text uh, in which those names are found. We hear, uh, and we saw this as we went through Genesis a few weeks ago, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, they fall, they receive the promise of God of uh, a son, a seed who will crush the serpent's head. And we read that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son and she named him Cain because she got a man. She named him Cain because she thought, here's the guy. Here's the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. The name had meaning. Isaac got a name that had meaning. A name reflecting the laughter that was greeted the Lord's promise given to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son in their old age. Sarah laughed. So when the son was born, that's the name he got. We read in the the story of Ruth how her mother-in-law, Naomi, changed her name back and forth to reflect her feelings about her circumstances and what was going on in her life. Elijah, the great prophet, my God is Yahweh, is his name. And that's a very powerful name, especially when the key conflict of his life was the choice that the nations of Israel and Judah were making. Will we serve Baal? Will he be our God? Or will Yahweh be our God? What's the choice? And Elijah comes along as a prophet, and his name says, My God is Yahweh. And he calls the nation to take Yahweh as their God as well. And of course, the name Joshua, or Yeshua, or in Greek, Greek slash English, Jesus. The name means what he does. He saves. And so many other names in Scripture have meaning, powerful meaning that goes with them. Well, those are, those are the, the given names that we give to our children, the first names we call them in English. But it's not just first names that, that carry meaning and, and have expectation attached to them. Sometimes the family name does as well. Sometimes in a literal meaning, uh, we have names that are passed down to us that are professions. Smith is a profession, or Cooper, or, or uh, Chandler, or some of these other names. But it's usually more than that. Oftentimes with our family names, we attach certain kinds of expectations to those and expect our children and our grandchildren to carry on the family name with honor and with dignity. And you'll hear uh, people talk about that as they pass on their heritage to their sons and daughters and grandchildren. And think about it. In America, we know this. If your last name is Roosevelt or Kennedy, or in modern times, Bush, there's a certain expectation that goes with that to serve the country, to be in a position of leadership in the United States of America. But it can be on a small scale as well. Um, You can have a father reprimanding his children. You're a Jones, act like a Jones. You're a Smith, act like a Smith. That's not how our family does things. That name has meaning. It symbolizes something. So be like what you are and act like what you are. 
Now, when we did our intro a couple weeks ago for Hebrews, we, we focused on the idea that God has spoken, and spoken in these last days according or through his Son. And we talked about who he's spoken to, when he spoke, how he spoke, what he spoke, and all those kinds of things. That's a key idea in the book of Hebrews. God has spoken through his Son. Pay attention to him. Consider him. Another key idea, and arguably one of the central ideas, if not the central idea, that begins here in this opening sentence of Hebrews. The first four verses is one sentence. Another key idea, maybe the key idea, is the superiority, the the excellence, the greatness of the Son. How the Son surpasses everything else. How the Son exceeds everything all others, in every conceivable way we can think. And we're going to talk about Jesus as we see him portrayed in this book as a superior priest, as a superior prophet, as a superior uh, king, etc., a superior sacrifice. What's interesting here, though, in these opening verses is that here the superiority, the excellence of the Son is tied to one thing, his superior name, the name that is more excellent than any others, a name that's a reflection, like the names oftentimes we give our children, we hope, is a reflection of who he is and what he's done. That's what I want to look at this morning. Who is the Son and what has the Son done? I want to walk through the text itself and then look at those two ideas. Who is the Son? What has the Son done? All right, so let's look at the text. This is going to be an interesting journey through Hebrews because I may spend a little bit more time than I normally do on some of the technical things going on in the text itself, partly because I always want to explain the meaning of what's in the text, but partly because Hebrews is so well written that I want to give you, as if I can, just a flavor of, of how exquisitely this book is written. Again, the first four verses are one long sentence. Now, in English, what does your English tell you about long sentences? Don't do it. <laughs> it's a run-on, or some, it's just not well-constructed. But here, in Hebrews, in the Greek, this long sentence is masterful. It is a work of art. Some of the things that are found in there, I'm not going to dig in in detail, but just point out a few things. It opens with alliteration, things that sound the same. There's a repeated use of the P sound in, in the Greek words, P, 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 all over again in the opening uh, phrases of, of the sentence. There's parallelisms and echoes of ideas that are repeated. Many people see uh, what's called a chiasm. We've talked about these before where ideas are structured in such a way that you've got a theme that is at the beginning and the end, a little bit in from both sides is another theme, and another theme in the center, and it forms kind of a sideways V. It looks like half of an X or half of the letter chi. And some people see this in these opening verses. The outer section is pointing to the sun himself, coming a little bit in from that, what the sun has done, and then at the very center, focusing on the, the son's divinity 
as creator and the exact image of his father. There's some speculation in the commentaries that the latter part of verse 2 and verse 3 together are either a quote from or kind of a paraphrase of an early hymn of the church. Very poetic language, very thematic language, language that sounds like it could be a kind of a song. And people debate whether that's true or not. <clears throat> Others look at these verses and see seven characteristics or seven descriptions of the Son and his supremacy. <clears throat> seven things. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sin, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty, at the right hand of God. Seven things about the Son that are echoed then later in verses 5 to 14 in seven separate quotations from the Old Testament. Seven and seven. Seven being, of course, a very important number in Scripture. We also can look at these verses and see the Son portrayed in his three offices as prophet, as priest, and as king. Prophet, the word of power, echoes in the language, too, of the Jewish idea of the wisdom of God, echoes of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and other extra-biblical wisdom literature. So prophet, he's priest, he made purification for sin, and he's king as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. All these themes, all these ideas woven into four verses. There's, there's a semester-long class in these four verses. It's incredible. Um, powerful things going on. All of this, though, written <coughs> in support of the idea and to expand upon the idea that God is speaking through his son. And what kind of a son is this? Leads to the exhortation that builds in this book to listen to the son, consider what he says, pay attention, and do what he tells you to do. Who is this son? What has he done? That's how this book opens by telling us who the Son is and a little bit about what he's done. So let's look at this. First, who is this Son that's being portrayed in these opening verses? Well, some of the things that I have already listed. We're told several things. Let's just go through them here quickly. One is that God has appointed the Son as the heir of all things. The Son then inherits everything from God. Now, don't think of that in terms of how we think of inheritance in human relations. God doesn't die and the Son inherits things. God can't die. This is more of a, of a declaration by God the Father about the Son. This is my heir. This is my one and only heir because he gets everything. Everything the Father has is the Son's. And that's important. Now, we know from biblical sources and literature and history and things that it was very typical in this culture for the firstborn son to receive the bulk of the inheritance. He got the land, he got 
the, the cattle and so on and so forth. But he didn't get everything. The younger sons got something. Think of <laughs> Jacob and Esau. Jacob stole the birthright, but Esau still got things. Or think of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus tells. The, the younger son comes to his father and says, look, give me, give me what you were going to give me and let me go do my thing. So we know that the firstborn son didn't get everything. He got the important stuff, but he didn't get everything. What's different here is God is saying, this is my only son. Therefore, he gets everything. This is a, a reminder of, and maybe part of where Abraham Kuyper got the idea that he's so famous for, that, that famous quote <coughs> from the Dutch theologian. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. <laughs> Everything is his. Every, every iota, every atom, every speck of anything, Christ looks at it and says, That is mine. And he can say that because the Father gave it to him as his. The Father appointed it, directed it to be his. <clears throat> so this is a unique and special son. <clears throat> We're told that God created through the son. Now we know this as well from First John and his description of the word. But we see the son here portrayed as the power, the word behind the creation of all things. It puts the son before creation. It means he is pre-existent. It means he's eternal and not a created being. In the debates about the divinity of the Son in the early church, they would point to a passage like this one, and this passage in particular, and say, here is evidence that the Son is God, eternal. They would also look to the next couple things we were told about the Son in this passage. First, <clears throat> that he's the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that. This relates to what Jesus told the crowd in, John 14, 9. He told them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one can see the Father. No one can look at God. The closest anybody got was Moses, hidden in the rock, as he got to see the backside, the metaphor, if you will, of, of God. But no one has seen God. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. He is the radiance of the glory of God himself. Think of what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the transfiguration. Jesus on the mountain, uh, 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 an echo again of Sinai. But here Jesus with Elijah and with Moses transfigured into glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is, therefore, <coughs> God himself. But then he goes on to say that he's the exact imprint of God's own nature. No one else shares the nature of God. The idea here is if you take a stamp or one of those signet rings that would seal in wax and the impression is made that's an exact copy of the original, Jesus in his nature is the exact copy of <clears throat> the nature of God. So again, he must be God, and he cannot be a created being, but God himself. <clears throat> we see the divine Son. 
We see the divine son acting as it says that he upholds the universe by his own power. Who else can do this but God himself? All things depend upon him and on his power. And so we have also the idea of God's providence, his holy and wise and just working out of all things for the good of his people. And that should be a source of confidence for us. The universe itself cannot be destroyed because the power of God, the power of the Son, holds it together. We don't have to despair like so many people around us about a meteor hitting earth and destroying us. God upholds us by his power. We don't have to worry about plague or disease or, or rising seas or, or melting ice caps or rampant heat and desert and deforestation. We don't have to worry about these things destroying humanity because God upholds everything by his power. Does that mean we can go ahead and do it and get away with it? Of course not. We are called to be <coughs> good stewards. But this fear-mongering that exists in the world around us should never be found in the church because the Son upholds everything by his power. We can't overcome that power. <clears throat> this is the Son who made a purification for sins. As both the sacrifice and the priest, he took care of the problem of sin. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. We're told about this son that he's seated at God's right hand, the majesty on high. The son, therefore, rules. We sung and read Psalm 2. He is this son before whom all other rulers must bow. The one they must kiss, lest they incur his wrath and perish in the way. This being seated at God's right hand should also remind us of Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This son is that my Lord to whom the Lord speaks, sitting at the right hand of God at his very own invitation. And then finally, he is as superior to angels as his name is superior. might seem like kind of an odd statement. It might even seem rather obvious given the things that have already been said. But what the writer is doing is setting us up for something he's going to talk about fairly soon in the book. There was a belief among the Jews that the writer seems to be affirming. We'll talk about it when we get to it in more detail. But that the angels were involved in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The making of the covenant with Israel through Moses. And Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus brings a better word and a better message and a better covenant than that delivered by angels to Moses. There's also an echo here of the angels, one of the names, if you will, um, one of the terms used to describe angels is sons of God, that metaphorical term. But here it's not a metaphor, not an honorary sort of title for exalted beings. It's a name. It's his name. And it's who he is. This is the Son. Not metaphorical, but real. 
the very nature of God. The radiance of His glory, the Creator, the powerful upholder of all things. His name is better. Well, that's the description we get of the Son. There are a couple things described there about what He does as well. What has the Son done? The Son has created all things. The Son has spoken, and we're going to learn more about that. The Son upholds the whole universe by His power. But the two things I want to focus on are the two things that kind of end the description of what He does. One, that He has made a purification for sins. And the other is that He has sat down at God's right hand. The first one of those, that the Son made purification for sins. I think this is an incredible phrase that summarizes the work of Christ for our salvation. He made purification for sins. And the writer's going to take this and expand upon it as we go through this sermon letter. We know that sin created a rift between man and God. For several reasons. One is sin is uh, it's a pollution. It's a stain. It's an evil that stands in complete opposition and in stark contrast to the purity of God and His holiness. Sin and God's holiness are so incompatible that they cannot be in the presence of one another without some covering, without some cleansing agent. And that covering, that cleansing agent is blood. Sin is a stain. Sin is also guilt. Sin is a breaking of God's law, which God as ruler and as king and as a holy and just judge has an obligation to punish. God must punish sin. He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, it says in the word. And that punishment is death. So sin is a stain. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a breaking of God's law. It brings guilt. Sin is also rebellion. And we talked about this also when we were going through the early parts of Genesis. Because in breaking God's law, not only do we break any hope of a healthy re- relationship with God, but we do it because we've become rebels against Him. We've rebelled against Him, become His enemies. And so now a hatred exists between God and man. The Bible calls it enmity. Pollution and guilt, rebellion. What the Son's purification for sin does is take care of all of these problems. The Son is pure and holy. He does not have any stain of sin. Tempted as we are, yet we are told without sin. And as a perfect sacrifice, once for all we're going to see He paid the penalty for sin. He died, who did not deserve to die, so that all who repent of their sin and seek his forgiveness, putting their faith and trust in him, receive his work on their behalf. But he didn't just take away the sin, because that's not enough. We also owe a debt of perfect obedience, which, because of our sin, we have not fulfilled. 
So the Son does more than just take away the sin. He also provides in exchange his own perfect obedience, trading his obedience for our sin. And as a result, then the relationship is restored with God through the Son. So this phrase, he made purification for sin, is pregnant with meaning and implications. Now men and women and children can be acceptable before God, can enter into his presence. Their rebellion and hatred taken away and replaced instead by steadfast love and mercy and grace. This is something the Son offers to all who will receive it and rest on it. And that resting is an important idea. And it leads to this idea as well, presented here in these first four verses, that the Son has sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We know that sitting at the right hand is a position of power, a place of ruling. But I want to point beyond that just to the act itself. He's sitting. (laughs) He's not standing at the right hand of the Father. He's not running around doing things at the right hand of the Father. He sat down. Why? And why does that make a difference? It makes a difference because his work is done. It's finished. Think of the word on the cross. It is finished. So now he sits and he rests until the Father makes his enemies his footstool. And the kingdom begun by his work on earth is completed at the last day when final judgment comes and his people enter into eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, he rests at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is that important? Because that's what we are called to do as well, to rest in him. There's an old hymn, the strife is o'er. It's done. The work is done. Any efforts that we had been making to try to do something about our sin, to erase the stain, to remove the guilt, to try to repair our relationship with God in some way, shape, or form, by doing good things, by paying it forward, by giving money, whatever it might be, all those are futile because they can never be enough. Because God demands perfection. All that striving, all that effort is done. It's over. It's finished. The Son did the work for us. It's finished and it's complete. And when we receive that work, we rest. Because it's done. That's what faith is, so much of faith is about. Receiving the gift that God offers and resting on it. I think faith is as much resting as anything else that we talk about it. doesn't mean we're lazy. doesn't mean we can do whatever we want and sin however we want because it's all being done and paid for. But our work and our actions now take on a completely different character. Let me see if I can give you kind of an example. Today is the last day of the Tour de France, the bike race that takes place in France and has for, I don't know, over 100 years. Three weeks of long bike races. They start out with 180, 200 riders. 21 races over the course of 23 days. And they, every year the course changes, but they race all around France. Flatlands, mountains, short sprints, long endurance races. 
over and over and over again, one person trying to build up a, a lead upon the rest. Today's the last day. The race is over. Most of the time in the Tour de France, by the time they get to the last day, and the last day is always a race into Paris and a finish on the Champs-Élysées, the overall winner is almost always decided long before they get to Paris. So you know what that guy's doing today? He's riding along, he's drinking champagne, he's drinking maybe a beer, he's linking arms with his teammates who helped him win and they're taking pictures. Other riders are coming alongside and you know, riding with him for a little bit just so they can get a picture with him. Hey, I, I was in the tour with this guy who won. It's done. It, it's over. He won the race. He won it days ago. He's resting. What's this day like for him? It's fun. It's a joy. Now, it's not a cakewalk. He's still got to ride it. He can't crash. He can't walk. He can't deviate from the course. He can't lollygag and finish too far behind, or he'll be disqualified. So he's got to continue riding his bike all the way to the finish. I think that's a pretty interesting metaphor for how we live our lives as Christians. The race is over. The work is done. We're just riding our bike to the finish line for the trophy we've already received. Think about that. Again, we can't deviate from the path. We can't ignore the, the work that needs to be done. He's still riding 25 miles an hour into Paris today. But it's not racing. It's just enjoying. We still work. We still do things. We still obey God's commands, but it takes on a completely different character when the victory is already won, when the purification's already been made, and when the one who won it for us is sitting down and resting. <laughs> we rest. The striving is over. The battle is won. We can rest from work because the Son did the work for us. And we rest in Him. And the, the passage ends with this remarkable statement about the, the name that He has being so much more excellent than the name of angels. This idea of names. Son. The Son. That's the most excellent name. There's no better name than that. The Son. The Son of God. Signifies everything we've talked about. Who He is and what He's done. In the Son is beauty. Again, He's, he's done the work. So now by grace and through faith, receiving that work, res resting on that work, what we learn from Scripture, what, what we read in Galatians is what? We're sons. Think about that now. Now, son is a generic term that applies to male and female. We're all children of God. We are all sons. His name is the most excellent name. But guess what? It's your name too. Not John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. Son. Daughter. Of God. 
There is no better name that you can possess than to be a child of God. There's no greater honor, no greater recognition, no greater achievement, no greater award, no greater prize that anyone could receive than being called a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. He inherits everything. So what do we inherit? Everything. (laughs) It's all ours. If Christ looks at everything in the world and says, mine, in him we look at everything in the world and say, ours. Maybe not yet, but in the fullness of time, that inheritance is coming to all who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ. The only other option is destruction. The only other option is wrath and being perished, being killed and perishing in the way. If you believe, then you are seated with Christ as well in the heavenly places. Paul writes about that in Ephesians. So again, what does that mean? Rest. You are there at the right hand of God with him, resting from work, just waiting for the consummation of all things to happen. That should put in perspective the things that are going on in this life. The petty fights for power and prestige that rage around us in the world. Think about it. Should a Christian care? (laughs) Should any of us really care what nation has possession of a certain chunk of land on 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 this globe? Does it really matter? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't. In the day-to-day living of life, it may have a huge impact on things. But for the Christian, it really doesn't matter. That man or woman in in a foreign country who's being tortured for their faith has the same inheritance as us here in this richest country in the history of the world. And that inheritance is better by far. Do we care about who's in charge of that chunk of land somewhere on the globe? the president, the prime minister, the king, the queen, the dictator, does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Eternally, no. Might make for a better or worse life in the meantime. But this is the same God who sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And we're not afraid. What do we really care about? What do we really value? The name The son, being sons and daughters, what do you value? Where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, there's where your heart is going to be as well. And what this book is saying, what this opening sentence is saying, is there's no better treasure than the name of Christ. There's no better possession than to be a son or daughter of the Most High God. That privilege is yours if you believe in him. And so the question as always is the same. Do you believe? If you do, hallelujah. If you don't, kiss the sun or you will perish. And we would wish that on no one. Let me pray for us. Lord God and Father Almighty, we do humble ourselves before you in praise and thanksgiving for the name that you have bestowed upon your Son. 
to call him your son. The honors, the privileges that you have bestowed upon him. And to think that we who believe share in that name and share in that inheritance is humbling, but also awe-inspiring. Our thoughts, our minds, our actions, our behaviors, our words are so often distracted by other things that rise up and challenge that great and glorious truth for supremacy in our thinking. Um, Help us to see things differently. (coughs) We pray as as we go through this book that you will make these things abundantly clear to us, that you will reshape and redirect our hearts and our minds, our attitudes, and our actions, so that we might, in them, uh, reflect that understanding of the glory and supremacy of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.